Hello, everyone, and welcome to The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, Meg Palladino and Lisa Igeri, and our guest expert, Ariana Gonzalez-Stokas, equity, inclusion, and diversity expert and author of the recently published Reparative Universities, Why Diversity Alone Won't Solve Racism in Higher Education, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Ariana joins us from Toronto, Canada. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Ariana about her book, her career journey, advice she has for those doing DEI work in higher education, and the importance of prioritizing joy in our work. Ariana, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And Meg's going to warm us up. Go for it, Meg. Today's question is, if you could live in any fictional world, what would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> Any fictional world. Yeah. I can answer perhaps wow. I thought about yeah. it. I, I think I like this question because we watched The Hobbit over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I want to live in the Shire in those little round houses that's built into a bank and it's always sunny. I don't really like the rest of the world, but like those cozy <laughs> little Shire houses and like they look like they have like good beer and lots of delicious food and tea. That's where I want to go. That sounds really nice. Gosh, there's so many. I mean, I think I spent my childhood inside, you know, a fictional world. <laughs> so I would say the first thing that popped into my head was actually I've been reading Moomin Troll with my kid, which is a series from Finland, which I didn't read as a child. But I would, I would love to be a Moomin, especially because of they hibernate for the winter time. And my child tells me that I'm the muskrat, which is a sort of like solitary <laughs> character, the philosopher in in Moomin Troll. So I, I, I suppose I would like to live in Moomin Land. Lisa, go next, because all I can think of are dystopian, please. <laughs> I don't have a specific one, but it would have to be a Broadway musical fictional scenario. So so if it's like, you know, where we break out in song and the emotions are too, they're too strong, so we have to sing it instead. <laughs> That's oh, great. I love that. You know, everything I think of is like, of girls or women you know when you said ariana like i read all of nancy drew all of Mm -hmm. little women and uh you know the laura ingalls wilder and cherry ames and the bobsy twins and didn't read the hardy boys started it and wasn't as interested but then i also thought because i was thinking of dystopia i thought Herland, right so i think something like that really oh just a place that is all women are mostly women or women dominated and supported. The opposite of The Handmaid's Tale, right? That would be my fictional happy place. Would that that's that's what I would like to I don't think that really exists, but I, I would like to be in that space. So wow, what a great question, Meg. That's a tough one. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I probably have a thousand answers depending on Yeah the mood in the day but it's like kind of cold and gray okay so let us jump into the questions that we sent you ahead of time so our book reparative universities why diversity alone won't solve racism in higher ed was released today correct yes yeah congratulations thank you tell us about this lovely book title alone is very enticing sure that was also you know the help of greg i was like that's kind of an intense title (laughs) 
I just had the first part and he was like, I think we need another part. So, you know, I, I like that kind of collaboration though. It's really, I find it helpful. So, I mean, the best way to describe the book, I suppose, is it really was a personal effort to come to terms, literally come to terms with diversity, equity, and inclusion work as a scholar administrator, kind of as that's sort of the identity, I suppose, of how I've navigated higher education and as a philosopher of education. So it it really was started from like a personal effort to kind of understand why diversity and equity inclusion, these three words in the practice of it, increasingly felt very like emptied out and felt as if they were not getting at the heart of the matter or they were somehow helping to evade some of the outcomes that many people who do this work around anti-racism or decolonization were seeking. And I wanted to understand a little bit more why. And I'd come across some kind of just foundational work in, you know, critical university studies. The work of Professor Nick Mitchell was helpful initially. They did this entry in, I forget the name of the, the actual text right now, but it was a diversity definition. And that sort of set me on this journey of really wanting to understand the roots of diversity. So I take a, you know, I guess you could say I take a critical and decolonial system DEI work, and I try and link the way we practice diversity contemporarily now in the academy to these longer colonial histories of how our way of knowing diversity actually transits from enlightenment, from the conquest of the Americas, and it was a conceptual category that had this morphology over time, which wasn't always a good social good, and then moves into contemporary times and has become the way in which we phrase and frame seeking remedy in higher education for historical exclusions. So in the book, I also offer a theory of epistemic reparation. So I try and paint a picture of reparation as something, a thick concept that moves far beyond monetary recompense. And this is taken up by, you know, the UN, the Commission on Reparation. It's described as cultural and psychological. There's an affective dimension, spiritual. So I take up, you know, epistemic reparation as thinking about what is the purpose of universities in this pursuit of remedy for the history that universities particularly find themselves entangled in in settler colonial society. And it draws a great deal from my own personal narrative. So the book is kind of interspersed with my own efforts and struggles and obstacles doing this work, the identity that I am in the academy, and really tries to reflect also on how that journey has framed the, the research, which was actually quite hard to do while I was holding a chief diversity officer position, because that's something I can also talk about today is there's a certain amount of silencing that happens as a CDO, self-silencing and also institutional. So that's the book. And yeah, it, it was a long process. It, you know, started many years ago, the writing itself. And I think I wrote it during the pandemic, mostly the height of the pandemic at night after my kid was in bed as a way to just sort of stay grounded somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, no, and it's yeah. such a necessary piece, you know, when you first started speaking. So I, I just want to, this is like a tiny follow-up because I haven't read it yet. But first thing I thought of was climate surveys, right? And mm -hmm. uh, we're all doing them. But you, you do it. First off, a lot of people, especially people of color, do not want to fill them out. I mean, they've talked to me where we are at VU. They've talked to me and said, you know, I don't want to fill this out. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it feels performative. 
right? Rather than, so what are you going to do with this? And what you said makes me think of a, a lot of this work is almost a containment is what I was thinking when you were saying, mm-hmm. right? It's to frame it, but also to contain it and keep mm-hmm. it in one space rather than to really grapple with what would true change look like at the institutional level. Yeah, I, I have a chapter in the book that discusses the first part is called the cabinet of diversity. And I talk about how the early practice of curiosity cabinets or wonder common was a way in which difference was creating taxonomies and organized. So colonial epistemologies really sought to patrol difference, right, and organize difference according to these taxonomies. So it becomes exactly that, a form of containment of difference, actually, and a organizing of difference in a way that's applying the kind of categories around hierarchies that I argue kind of stems. And a lot of our, I would say, institutional technologies around DEI work are like climate surveys. Like we we haven't fully liberated ourselves from these frameworks as we're seeking to create more inclusive or equitable environments. So Lisa, I think you are up with the next question. I am, and this builds exactly on what you were talking about is we want to know more about the career journey that you have. You've had an interesting administrative career and would love for you to share what you've learned along the way and some lessons that might be helpful for others doing DEI work in higher ed. Sure. I think my my trajectory was both a combination of like pursuing questions that I just wanted to answer somehow, but survival in the academy. So I kind of fell into administrative work. I would describe it that way in some ways, because when I was at, I was doing my PhD at Teachers College, funding was running out. You know, I was incredibly broke. I ended up starting to work in administration as a way to finish my PhD. So I worked as a director of opportunity programs first while writing the the PhD. And I found, you know, what I realized along the way was that situated there and seeing, you know, the things my students were bumping into and what I was bumping into within the system was difficult to affect change in, in the, from the faculty side of the house, so to speak. So I kind of went back and forth over the years, but I am a systems worker. I like to work on systems and there are Ahmed I think very aptly describes diversity work as like institutional plumbing work, which I think is a good way to capture some of it. But I realized it was difficult to reframe systems sitting in the faculty side. There's a different difficulty when you're in the administrative side. And the other part of it, so those were interesting kind of conceptual questions as a philosopher of education, but then there was just the survival. So I think I had a good grad program but I would say I don't feel like I received the help as a first-generation student, PhD student, in trying to understand how to navigate getting jobs, postdocs. Frankly, I saw a lot of men getting a lot of support that I wasn't getting, or at least not the kind of support that I would have wanted. And I can go into more depth there if we need to about the kind of sexism and misogyny that you navigate as a young woman doctoral candidate in some of these programs. So I think part of it was like figuring out just how to survive and find a job. I also was just not willing to move to somewhere where I didn't feel like there was a Puerto Rican community that I would feel at home a little bit with. So that limited the jobs also, particularly I was graduating, finished in 2010. And the job market from 2008 was just very much rapidly disappearing. So it kind of was like, 
figuring out how to have some autonomy and agency over geography, how to pursue questions that interested me. Then the kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion roles, chief diversity officers, those started to emerge. They weren't really in the same instantiation early on. So I think some of that in the academy is like you figure out the workarounds because I would say that the academy is not the most hospitable environment for certain identities and certain people. And I think in general, right, I think just the labor conditions, depending on the institutions that you're in, can be really challenging. So finding that balance for me was also part of it. Yeah. Lisa, do you have a comment? Maybe just to ask the second part of that, of your reflections on for for others then who are trying to do the institutional plumbing and and doing the work Mm -hmm. around, what advice might you have or, or what observations do you have for them of how to find their own space within that. Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things, I think. I Right now, I, I work supporting, coaching some chief diversity officers in my consulting work. And I think, you know, one of the first pieces, I would say, for people doing this work, even if you're, I think you're also, I will say, made a diversity worker. You're not in an institution. You're not only, it's not only the official role that you're hired. So if you're a woman in certain types of departments, if you're Black, Indigenous, Latinx, a person of color, Asian, in certain types of environments, you're already made into a diversity worker, right? So I think really thinking hard about how you maneuver and what you're willing and not willing to do when the institution decides to kind of make you a diversity worker, I think it requires, as a CDO, I'll just talk about that role. It's really important, number one, I think, to draw very clear boundaries for yourself about protecting your well-being. Because the average tenure for a CDO right now is 18 months to three years. So right now, this turnover is incredibly high. So number one is like, with many of the leaders I've worked for, it was defining very clearly in the beginning, here's what my hours are and here's what I'm not going to do. And that's usually after you get the job. So, you know, and I think it's not to be unreasonable. So I would often say I'm not available in the middle of the night unless someone has died, literally, which happens, unfortunately. So there's kind of drawing those and there's ensuring even before you get hired that there's resources that are available for you. I think asking those very pointed questions about what kind of you know, administrative support, financial support is the institution making. And I think trying to get really clear on who the leader is because the leader of an institution really sets the tone for how you can succeed in the work. I was really fortunate to work for an incredible leader at Barnard College, President Sian Bailak, who's now on her way to be the president of Dartmouth College. And it was a really life-changing experience, I would say, in the sense that I went there because I, I really was like, maybe it's going to be different for a woman. I don't know. It was different, not just because it was a woman president, but because of her leadership approach. But also, it was a very different experience to be in a room of senior leaders who were all female. So I would say, like, assess the climate as much as you can. But when you're in the role, you have to find support. So you have to first create this kind of community of support both in the institution and outside So you really need trusted advisors and mentors and people you can talk to who are not in your institution. And find, like, lastly, I'd just say, like, you have to find your joy practices. Like, you really have to find the things that keep you joyful and hopeful because the pressure is very intense. The issues are very dystopian. (laughs) 
right now. So I think like finding those things outside your job and your job is not you is really critical. Awesome. Thank you. What is the thing that brings you joy? Oh, I roller skate. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> I love roller skating. I love dancing. I played roller derby for many years. I've been an athlete also for many years, but found roller derby, loved it, got a lot of concussions, needed to stop playing, but I still love to roller skate. So I, you know, I do some roller dance stuff here and there and take my kid roller skating and activity, you know, also writing, obviously, but yeah. That's a, that's a joy practice. I was going to say, I think Meg wants a follow-up question around joy. <laughs> I do, absolutely. The face lit up when you said joy practices. <laughs> yeah. I always want to yeah. know what people do for joy. I don't know what I do exactly. I walk my dog, maybe. It's, you know, I think it's like one of those things. That's why it's a practice, because I don't think that. If your scholarship is really kind of serious, we live in very psychologically and emotionally intense times. It's. And how to sustain oneself in the face of all this and how you find like community to do that. So like roller skating is like, there's a big community. It's like very, you know, you're around people, you're, I think it has to be a practice. And I, you know, I follow people like Trisha Hershey, the Nat Minister, she does the Rest of Reparation Project. But I think like in DEI work in particular, I would say like the joy practices that stem from who you are as a person, whether it's your you know, family history, ethnic history, or identity in some ways, you have to feel connected to something outside of some of that pressure. So yeah, I think it's a practice. Like you have to then find the thing and then be like, okay, I have to make time for this because it, you know, the academy is also very serious. It's always very serious. And, you know, I, I do, you know, I write a book on reparations, but it's part of reparation and reparative work, I think, is resisting and refusing oppression. And the way that historically many communities have done that is through joy practices, right? These practices that are refusal practices. I love that. Well, you know, and I'm actually, I'm teaching higher end policy this semester and we run student loans. And last night the students were like, this is so depressing. And yeah, I do think taking that question and and aside some time next week for this concept of joy practice right you know kind of asking them like what do you do to resource yourself because this is hard work and these are challenging times right yeah yeah doing it you've got to fill your cup whatever metaphor you use right and and also it's a deficit idea so you know i have good friends Westchester University, Jason Wozniak, if you ever want to interview someone else, he writes on debt consciousness and he works for the Debt Collective, strike that, you know, those groups. And, you know, they talk a lot about one of these things is consciousness, like this deficit approach that, you know, you're, you're indebted, but how you orient yourself to that, you know, the consciousness that you have is really important part of that resistance because society wants you to feel that way uh, or certain forces in society because if you feel indebted enough and guilty enough you're gonna make sure you're doing whatever you can to repay your debt and obviously reparation is bound up for me in this concept of indebtedness who are we really indebted to or who are really the debtors is a question i would ask you know students to think about this has been amazing Honestly, kind of slow and sleepy, but I'm like, yeah. my, my poor little brain is now expanded in a good way. And I love the fact I love Sarah Ahmed. I often will say, you know, yeah, and her work on 
performative diversity and the diversity statements in Britain and competitions over the best diversity statement, but not actually (laughs) the needle on anything on your campus, which I think is is so illustrative of a lot of the work that we do. And so, yeah, yeah, no, it's wonderful. So we are at time. So we try to do this wrap up of a big aha moment or a takeaway. And I'm going to start with Meg. I feel like they're sort of like flipped on sort of one of the most negative things you said, one of the most positive things you said, like when you were talking about the misogyny and sexism that PhD candidates, PhD candidates have to go through, I was like, I want to hear more about that. But what I want to leave with is the joy part. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think it's super important to find joy. And I love the relationship. <laughs> Lisa? My takeaway is is actually hanging on to that joy. And I love the idea of actually, as we're working in our classes with our students, at preparing them to go into administration with an appreciation for that as part of the role is to make sure that you're creating that space. So thank you for, for making that a course. They need it. They really do. And they need us to show them too how to do it, I think, and do it with them. You know, like this, it can be a joyful endeavor, even when it's hard, right? Administration is really hard right now. So you have to carve out that. They're making a life, just like we talk to students about making a life as a scholar. The administrator is you're making a kind of life in the academy. And how you do that is really important to, to frame the whole dimensions of that as those of us, you know, you're teaching them or you're supporting and doing it for yourself. I mean, it's a slog, right? <laughs> it's a slog. And I call it a sector under siege. No one likes it when I say that. Yeah. Well, and it's not the only one, but it really is. And I think this, you are all, I mean, I think this is obvious and maybe wouldn't be, you know, it's obvious to many people of color, but you are already made into a diversity work, worker. Like that is such a powerful statement, right? That I think for, especially for people of color, Lisa and I are no woman dominant area. So I don't think we feel that as much for gender. I mean, in different settings, we definitely would. But you are already viewed as a diversity worker in any setting. And, you know, calling that up and making that transparent and making that visible, I think is really important. Right. So I love the framing and the words you gave that. And it's very helpful to me going forward. And including, if I may, the responsibility or the the guideline to say, because of that, that you need to set those boundaries early and be clear about what you're comfortable owning and not owning. I really appreciate that insight. Yeah. Yeah. And how is it even like as a CDO, how I often would operate? I would be directed immediately to the faculty of color. (laughs) And then I would say, I don't really care about the faculty of color right now. I want to leave them alone. I want to figure out who are the other faculty who need to pick up some of the burden of work and wait, or, you know, Many times women are carrying a lot of the burden of service labor in their faculty departments. So yeah, so we're, it is about being very clear from the beginning who you are in that space, how that space confers particular qualities onto you and then particular types of work onto you. And I think as a graduate student, I wasn't very clear about those things. But I think it took a little while to understand those things. Excellent. Well, any anything you want to say as we close? I always appreciate the kinds of conversations. I would say particularly in spaces that, you know, want to think about female identity in the academy, people who identify as women and what it feels like, because I do think it's also still one of those topics where we've talked about it a lot. You know, DEI doesn't talk about misogyny. <laughs> it's the way that it's, I, we talk about gender equity and, you know, but really like I read Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann. I highly recommend it. 
I started um, it. Tough. It's tough. It is tough. And, you know, I think making sure students and other people are aware of some of the descriptions is important. But even there's that topic. So, you know, I think like building community through conversation, how folks talk with each other right now and show up for one another and acknowledge and affirm how difficult the conditions are is really important. And then like how we can find, of course, like joy practice whether it's sharing work or just being in spaces together. But I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work and, and meet you all today. So oh, it was really quite wonderful to meet you. Fun. This was really fun. Ariana, we so appreciate you. Thank you. That was really amazing and so good. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with Dominique Baker, Associate Professor of Education Policy in the Annette Caldwell-Simmons School of Education and Human Development at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.